In Formula One, everyone is racing for something. During each Grand Prix, on every inch of racetrack, teams and drivers are fighting. And the midfield fight is every bit as intense as the battle for the lead. Five teams are racing to finish highest in the standings and win millions of dollars in extra prize money. That is what AlphaTauri is racing for, and its technical director, Jody Eggington, is pushing flat out. We want to be in the top five in the Constructors' Championship. You know, last year we had a car to do it and we didn't do it and that hurts. I'm Tom Clarkson and this F1 Beyond the Grid is all about Jody's journey. From newly qualified school teacher to motorsports technical peak. Resigned from my other job six weeks in, which was, yeah, I think my mother was not so impressed with that, sort of giving all of this hard work, effort up to get a decent job and give it up to go and play racing cars. And uh, I was in and, uh, and it was fantastic and I loved it. And then since then, I've never wanted to, uh, you know, do anything else really. If you want to be an engineer in F1, listen up. Jody's got some advice for you. He's also got stories of working with big personalities like Ken Tyrrell, one of the old school name on the car team bosses, and Vijay Malia, the businessman whose Force India team sometimes stunned the sport in the 2000s. Jody's seen F1's high-tech transition from pencil drawings to virtual models, and he's struggled for survival at a brand new F1 team. Those worries are in the past. Today, AlphaTauri work closely with Red Bull, and Jody's got some fascinating insight into how that relationship works. He had an insider's view of Pierre Gasly's return to the team from Red Bull Racing, and he's helping Yuki Tsunoda to score more and swear less. We sat down to talk about all that and much more at the British Grand Prix. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jody, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. How's everything? Yeah, it's quite good. It's been a, obviously a very busy uh, year, very busy 18 months with the regulation change. But uh, yeah, we're up and running, we're racing, and uh, yeah, we're well into the season now. And uh, yeah, it's intense as always. It is, and we are almost at the halfway point now. Um, how do you feel it's gone from an Alpha Towery point of view so far? Um, I mean, honestly, just stepping back and, and sort of looking at, at the big picture, we've unfortunately missed a few opportunities to score points. So we've got less points than we feel we should have at this point in the season. There's a few things that have not gone our way in races with safety cars and other things. Reliability's not uh, been as good as it should have been in, in a couple of instances, which has cost some points. But on the flip side, we've learned a lot about the car. The car's developing quite well. And, you know, there's half the season or more than half the season to go. So we can, uh, we're confident we can, we can recover and start moving forwards with this package. Seems to me that most teams have had reliability issues this year. Given that the power units are the same fundamentally as last year, why have these new regs been throwing up so many problems for the teams? I think there's, there's numerous reasons, but you know, from our own experience, um, we've repackaged a lot of things with the new aero regulations. We've got the same parts or modified parts in different positions on the car. Um, the window the car operates in is different in terms of stiffnesses and ride heights, and, the, and, and the, you know, there's certain parts running in different environments. Um, and then on top of that, there's just things which sometimes fail and you, you learn as you go along. There's a lot of new parts on the car as well with the new aero regs, et cetera, et cetera. And you make a change. There's always a risk that's, you, you know, you, you, there's a banana skin and you fall over it. And for us, unfortunately in the races, we've had a couple of instances of things not going as we wanted, uh, a DRS flap issue, uh, but being one of them, easy to fix, but until you're faced with the problem, you don't recognize it. What have been the most appealing technical aspects of these new cars? The big technical aspect change is, is the change in the aero regulations. It's been fantastic, you know, with these new cars. And it's, uh, it's forced us to look at uh, things very differently. We're all very familiar and enjoyed the old regulations. They evolve year on year and we sort of knew where we were going and we were making progress and, and, and it was good. But then when you're faced with a, essentially a blank, a clean sheet of paper, and you're saying, okay, what's going to make these cars tick? How are these aero regulations going to work? And you, you have to get creative. And, you know, you, right back to the concept stage of the car, you're saying, okay, how do we think this car is going to respond to these regulations? Which directions do we need to go in? Um, and as engineers, that's fantastic, something new. It's not without risk and it's a lot of work. And we all grumble that it's, you know, it's a massive task. But I think that's been the most in interesting bit, that it's the biggest change and the closest to a clean sheet of paper we've seen in a long while. The introduction of these new cars was delayed due to COVID. With more time to think, did you change your approach to the regs during the lull? 
Um, I mean, obviously, as you say, the regulations were delayed and there was some, you know, there was an amnesty we weren't allowed to develop, but you, you know, you, you can't stop people thinking and it, it gives people uh, time to consider things. But you know, every time you answer a question, you typically have another 10 questions. So I think there's pros and cons to it. Um, we had a clear view of what we wanted to do as every team would have done. And we probably had more things to look at than the available wind tunnel time or physical time or manpower or whatever. So we're still learning now. But yeah, there was, there was pros and cons really. I mean, we shouldn't forget as well that although this car was delayed a year, we still had a bit on preparing another car for the interim year, although there was a lot of carryover. So uh, yeah, the amount of head, extra headspace we got wasn't that great because we still had to do, you know, like an infill in the interim with the 2021 car, which was a strong evolution of 2020. Now, you mentioned the wind tunnel. How did swapping from a 50% tunnel in Bicester to a 60% tunnel in Bedford upset the design process? I mean, it's an extra activity. There's no getting around it. You know, normally if, if you're established in a wind tunnel, you understand how the tunnel works. You prepare your model and you evolve from one project migrating to the next. Um, going from 50% to 60%, it's extra work. There's no getting away from that. And the aero guys had to prepare a 60% model. That in itself is a big chunk of work. Our 2021 car was born. The launch spec car came at 50%. And then we migrated that car to 60% so we could get some form of understanding of how the car responded differently at 50 and 60%. How does it? respond um, differently I mean it's, uh, it's, it's 60% you've got a uh, you know it, it's a bigger model and all, and all the benefits with fidelity and representation come with that but you have to learn the new wind tunnel as well we were going to a, a new tunnel we were not familiar with as customers we had to understand how the, the wind tunnel how the tool worked as well so because we had data on our car at 50% we went to 60% we knew roughly what we were looking for and without going into detail certain bits of the car responded differently and better at 60%. So we understood where maybe the 50% tunnel was not giving us the clearest picture. But then on top of that, there's other things you've got to learn in the other direction. So that was a good opportunity. But then in parallel, we were allowed to get going with a 2022 car. So we had to get that into the tunnel as well, another 60% model. So it was intense and you know, it was our decision to move tunnel and looking at the medium and long-term benefits, they're clearly there at 60%, but it was a lot of work and the guys did a good job, but it, it was intense and somewhere along the line, there's compromise, short-term, there always is, but the philosophy is we'll recover that medium to long-term and I think that will be the case, but there's no way to make a change like that and guarantee that it's seamless. We did a good job, but it wasn't seamless. And you share the new tunnel with Red Bull Racing. Yeah. yeah. How does that work? I mean, essentially, I mean, the, the way the wind tunnel regulations are now and the amount of occupancy each team's allowed to have, it, it makes sharing a wind tunnel viable from a time perspective. And, and we get the amount of time that we're allowed by the regulations and Red Bull get what they're allowed. And uh, th there's a handover process and we operate in a certain part of the building that they don't go near and they operate in a part of the building that we don't go near. It it's just like renting a tunnel, essentially. We could go to Toyota or somewhere else. Um, you have to be a bit more disciplined than when you've got your own tunnel on site that you can, you know, you can rush things through a bit differently. But essentially, we're both using a facility. They use it for the amount of time. We use it for the amount of time. And, you know, when we're finished, we turn the lights off and go and they turn the lights back on again and crack on with what they're doing. So it's just another tool that you rent. So uh, it, it, it's fine for us. It's just different to using our own tunnel. But our, my view was that the benefits of going to 60 percent outweighed the compromise of maybe not having quite as much freedom as you do have when you've got your own facility on site. Right. You wanted to go to 60 percent. How do you set about trying to find a 60% tunnel for those of us who don't know I mean there are I mean for us in, how in many lot, are there in the world I mean yeah there's a number of I mean there's a number of 60% uh, facilities available for hire I mean Toyota when they're in Formula 1 actually had two 60% wind tunnels they're out of Formula 1 now those facilities can be hired I have a, in, in a former life with another team we've used that facility but in all honesty the way the aerobics went and with Red Bull Racing having a 60% wind tunnel and having a slot it was a no-brainer to go there you know um going to my bosses and suggesting we were going to go somewhere else would have been, why would we do that? We've got one of those. So the regulations permitted it. Aston Martin do a similar thing with uh, the Mercedes wind tunnel. So it's a logical progression for us to go to that tunnel. It was the most obvious one to use. Uh, it's in the UK, just up the road in Bedford from our base in Bicester. Um, the Toyota tunnel's in Cologne. So, you know, it's, it's more of an exercise to do that. So it was sort of a no-brainer. That, that was never really a, a question. It was find a good slot and a good time to make the transition. You know, I was always keen to do it since I'd been responsible for the project. It was where I wanted to go. There was no way we were gonna build our own 60% tunnel. That was not viable. So it was a case of like, what's the best time to do it? The regulation change seemed logical. The idea to launch a car in one tunnel and then attempt to move it over to another tunnel to validate it was a good idea. It was extra work and it's worked quite well. So there is compromise, as I said, but I think we've made the best of what is a challenging thing to do. 
So uh, I'm fairly happy with it. And at the end of the day, it was ultimately my call from a technical perspective. So, you know, it, it is as it is, but I, I'm satisfied we've made the best of it so far. And when we look at these 2022 regs as a whole, have they achieved the objective set out by Formula One? I think on a macro level, and let's not forget we're early into year one still, I think uh, that they have. I mean, you know, you can follow a car now um, closer, losing, you're losing significantly less downforce. I think we've proven that. There's changes in tyres as well, which also aid it. So I think by being able to follow closer, you're setting up the conditions for an overtake. Now, whether overtaking is never going to be easy in Formula One. If it was, people would complain saying it's too easy. So I think the conditions that the regulations have brought us are good. And it's allowing us uh, as a first year to say, yeah, we're now in a position where it's easier to race. So I think there's more fine tuning and adjustments that can be made to move it further forward. But looking at the main objective, which was to make following easier for the car behind, it, it's achieved the objective, I would say, at this stage. Knowing what you know about your car and about other cars on the grid, is there anything you'd have done differently with the AT03? The answer to that, and I think everyone, to, to a greater or lesser extent, every technical director or design team would say yes to that. Um, nothing fundamental but there's some you know people launch cars you see fantastic ideas you might have said oh we had a look at that but for us it wasn't something that worked quite well but then you see maybe how they're combining it with other parts of the car aerodynamically or mechanically and you think let's have a look at that again so that natural process of, of thinking oh we looked at that but we didn't we didn't carry it forward look how they've interpreted it you always do that i think you learn a lot we learn a lot from what we see from other people's cars we also learn a lot from what other teams don't say about their car. Sometimes you can read a technical press release and go, right, what are they not saying? Because you know, people want to talk, but they don't always want to tell you the details. So yeah, I think, I think there's things on the car that we could say, yeah, we'll look at that again. I mean, we're going to evolve the car. We're developing the car still now. There's certain features on floors and other things that we've looked at again and gone, ah, it's working better now. It's now working with that component or the flow structure it's setting up aerodynamically we can make use of in this way or that way. So to answer your question, yes. But on the flip side, I'm not fundamentally sitting here and going, oh God, our concept's wrong because I don't believe it is. You know, I think we're in a, a similar vein to a lot of teams and now it's just a development race to learn and improve the car as quick as you can. And can you explain in layman's terms the advantages of push rod front suspension? I mean, again, it's uh, if, if we look at it from the aero perspective, you know, I can say it now, well, we spent a great deal of time looking at pull rod front suspension as well. And at the point we had to freeze that, you know, and that sort of decision is a relatively early one because it's tied into chassis. The push rod was more performant for us, but the teams of pull rod, clearly they had a different view at that moment but also at that snapshot in time people's floor development could have been quite different front wing development could have been quite different so it's where you are in that moment that you've got to make the decision you know historically we can talk about structural benefit of push rod and, and the packaging benefit of pull rod or something but ultimately it's an aerodynamic decision and the fact that we've got quite a diverse approach to it on the grid tells you that both can be made to work and the key thing is i'd rather have a push rod that we understood and worked than a pull rod that we thought was great but we hadn't quite got to work yet so it's you know but it's an aerodynamic discussion at the end of the day red bull racing how much crossover is there between your team and them does helmet marco have a towering presence over you as he does red bull racing if, if we look at the you know the, the big picture i mean uh, alpha tari as a team you know historically in his in his former guys as uh Toro Rosso has been responsible for bringing young talent on and Helmut's a big part of that and Franz is a big part of that as well. So on the sporting level, you know, we get, we receive the young drivers, we work with the young drivers and we're very involved in that process. That's unchanged regardless as if we've got a Red Bull gearbox in the back or not. That, that, that's the thing, that's part of our being. Um, on a technical level, um, you know, there's parts we can purchase now and we're three or four years into the a synergy with Red Bull, we've been taking parts off them. Um, I'm fully supportive of that as a technical director. It, it suits our needs quite well. The rules are quite clear. Um, so we buy those parts and we make use of them and we make sure we use them properly and uh, don't abuse them and, and, and are careful with them. But in terms of our technical decision making, we're independent, you know. If we want to take their gearbox, we take their gearbox. I don't get a say in what it is. You know, it is what it is. We'll look at it and say, yeah, we'll make use of that and design the car around it. But we're an independent team and uh, we just happen to make use of their parts, as other teams do, really. But uh, we set our objectives from headquarters in terms of what we're meant to deliver. And our overarching objective is to be a consistent feature in the top five of the championship. You know, that's where we, that's where we want to be. That's where we are. And I'm tasked with delivering that technically. Um, I'm sure it's a discussion point between Helmut and, and fans on many occasions, whether we're delivering or not. But, you know, in terms of what we do technically, we're independent and I'm responsible and accountable for 
what we put out as a car. You say this team develops driver talent. What about engineering talent? You know, I think it does as well. I mean, I've said this before, and uh, we are a sort of a relatively young team. You know, our engineering staff are fairly young. We've got a strong graduate employment program on the design side, aero side, and engineering side. And um, we make use of that. You know, we bring young drivers through. There's young engineers on the team. We've got a couple of guys at this race, Silverstone, first time at the track as a performance engineering this event. They've done it from the factory, they've shadowed, they've done all the background stuff, but you know, they're here for the first time as young engineers at their first event live on the front line. And, that's, and, and I think that's a, you know, that's a fantastic thing to see and it's a testament to the team. So yes, I think we are developing young talent on many different levels. How does a graduate join this team? I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, we're always on the lookout for, for, for clever young people and, and, and the, the obvious and the normal routine is for a placement year, a graduate student intern programmer. You know, you can be two years into your mechanical engineering degree and you submit a CV to do a year out, as we call it, with an F1 team. And we have a rigorous interview and assessment process and we get hundreds of applications and we norm we're typically taking across the technical department probably 10 or 15 each year and they get a year either moving around departments or working in specific departments, be it aero, design, R&D, vehicle performance group. And then at the end of that year, they go back, they finish their degree and, you know, hopefully are successful in their studies. And then they're on, you know, they're towards the front of the queue for any recruitment that we need to do of young junior engineers. They're also available to other teams, of course. They've got that on their CV. They've got that year's experience. They're potentially committed to working in motorsport. So that's how we do it. And we take a lot of our graduates from our student placement programme. Or if we can pick other graduates up from other programmes, you know, there's a lot of teams doing the same things. The sad reality is that we can't take everybody on board that we train up. So that's the main way of doing it and the junior level. And then we've got a good development program. You know, as I said, there's people coming trackside now who four or five years ago were these people coming out of university green. And now they're at the point where they're, you know, they're making their debut trackside. Jody, you've been in the sport 25 years, more. Yeah. How has the job of an engineer changed in that time? Are these new guys coming in, coming into the same world that you were 25 years ago? Uh, certainly not. They're certainly not coming into the same world. I mean, if we just look at it on the scale of Formula One, when I finished university and was keen to get involved in it, a big team would have been 250, 300 people. A small team would have been 100. Now we're looking at a small team of 400 people and a big team, you know, probably upwards of 800. So the amount of specialisms increase. You know, you're recruiting people more into specific roles. When I left university, my first role was as a designer and I was involved in all manner of things. Okay, these people need a bit of help. Go and design a bit of that go and do a bit of this, pit equipment, fuel system. And you, you were getting exposed to a lot more things. Now you specialize a lot earlier. You can still move around, but the, the, the level of expertise these guys have as they're picking up is fantastic. You know, they're super experts within a couple of years and they're not all rounders, so it's different. You, you know, you can move around and pick up skills in other places, but the level of skills they've got is fantastically high. And how has the budget cap affected your ability to attract new talent in that? Are we seeing budget limitations, meaning that some of the best talent that would have come to Formula One five, ten years ago is now leaking out the side and going to NASA, for example? People are always interested why Formula One is high tech and, and you know, working for, you know, uh, in, in the space industry or something has a similar appeal. For us, you know, in terms of where we are with budget cap and where we were before, it's not a million miles away. So our techniques for attracting people are, are not really changing. Also, as a, as a smaller team, we can probably offer a more diverse experience to a graduate, you know. We are a smaller team. We probably expect a slightly wider um, range of work from our graduates. So there's benefits, you know. I mean, someone can be working on a particular project and we'll say, okay, this one's just come in. Okay, let's get one of the graduates to have a look at it. And all of a sudden they're, jumping into something else and as a smaller team I think we can offer that um, also it's easier to follow the process in a smaller team so I think we're still desirable on many ways for people who want to get stuck in a smaller team has advantages on the flip side maybe a bigger team has different advantages because um, you know they're, they're more towards the front of the grid maybe you'll get exposure to a slightly different range of things and you know the, the, the skills you're picking up are certainly different but yeah I still think for a young engineering graduate Formula One is an attractive business budget cap or no budget cap Let's talk about your journey next. I want to wind the clock back to 1996, to your first year in Formula One with Tyrrell. How did you end up there? Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I, you know, I did the usual thing. I, I did my degree. Then after my degree, I did a, a certificate of uh, postgraduate education. So I qualified as a teacher, but I didn't really 
want to be a teacher. I just thought it would be another string to the bow for another day. And I'd always really been into motorsport. I was really keen on it since I can remember. And, and, and I'd done the usual applications and had several interviews with uh, uh, teams. I think Reynard and was one of them and, and Tag McLaren. But uh, the, the clock was ticking. And so I took a job with a large engineering company. I think I was six weeks in and I got a, a, a letter from Tool saying, come in for an interview. So, okay, in for an interview, I think I had about 20 minutes with Mike Gascoigne and Harvey Pothelswaite, and they basically said, look, you know CAD, you can drive a CAD machine. You know a little bit of engineering, but not much really. But anyway, you're sort of what we need. This is what we can offer. We can give you six months work, yes or no. So it's like, yes, okay. And then resigned from my other job six weeks in, which was, yeah, I think my mother was not so impressed with that, sort of giving all of this hard work effort up to get a decent job and give it up to go and play racing cars. And uh, I was in and, uh, off and going and it was fantastic i could i was using cad there were still people on drawing boards until at that stage so i was sort of the cad monkey doing a bit of everything and it was fantastic and i loved it and then since then i've never wanted to uh, you know do anything else really but the first attraction for you was engineering or was it formula one or were they together it, it, it was it was a uh, motorsport you know i'd always been a massive fan of motorsport i uh, played around with cars at home, built a couple of motorbikes. I was really into motorbikes and cars and making bits for them and designing bits at home. I was just a nut about it. And I wanted to work in motorsport. I wasn't interested in working for, you know, Rover Group or Jaguar, it was motorsport. Um, but because the timing of job offers hadn't come through, I'd accepted something else as an, an infill. And, but as soon as the opportunity came, it, I, you know, it was fantastic. And to draw bits, even if it was pit equipment or small parts for a Formula One car was just a dream. So that first six months was just, being like a sponge and you know sucking in as much as I could about everything and probably annoying people with constant questions but it was great. What was Harvey Pothelswaite like? I mean I, you know beyond an interview I, I didn't have much exposure to him I was just sort of the body in the office but you know listening to him and Mike and uh, uh, you know the race engineers and other senior designers it was just sort of fantastic you're hanging on every word and everything they're saying you're thinking about and sometimes you're not quite sure what they what they're on about so you're going away and trying to understand more so it was just a fantastic learning experience you know the things they talked about as bread and butter activities in a design sense it was just like okay i need to learn about that i need to learn about this and it was just like being in a toy shop so uh yeah it was just great and in a small team because you have to remember till were doing everything gearbox everything in house and within this small building but then the engine a complete formula one car was being designed and constructed you know, and within 10 meters of my desk, there was someone else happening in this direction, that direction. It was great, you know, and it was, it was like this small community and you can see everything going on, you know, the patterns being uh, um, made for the chassis, the, the, the chassis buck, the laminating of the chassis, everything. So you had exposure to everything. And uh, yeah, it was just fantastic. It's, you don't see that now, the organizations are so much bigger. So for me, it was just great. What was the biggest surprise for you, a guy in his early twenties? The decision-making process, you know, that is like, okay, this is what we're going to do and this is when we're going to do it by. And when you're first exposed to that, you know, and, and the design reviews and, and things are happening and, and the deadlines are being pushed and things are moving so quickly from idea to parts being made and tested. Now it's familiar to me, it's normal. In fact, the opposite is true now, it's never quick enough. But then you were like, this is incredible, you know, this and this needs to be done, that needs to be done. You know, I'd been fiddling with stuff in my garage making bits and it takes forever and it's not right and you do it again. But you're sitting down with all these, or you're watching all these really talented people doing all this stuff and it comes together so quickly. And you're a small part of that doing detailed drawings and getting stuff wrong and people saying, no, don't do it like that. You've got to do it like this and you dimension it like that. And it's just fantastic. And then all of a sudden you, it all starts to click. You know, and, and it's great. Was Ken Tyrrell still involved back then? Yeah, he was. Yeah, Ken was still involved. I mean, he, you could still see him around, and it was clearly his team, and he had a, you know, the, the strong views he was known for. But at the end of the day, it was his name above the door. It was his team. So you know, the, 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 there's one of the last guys who was his team. It's my responsibility. I'm accountable, and this is what we're doing. It was great. You know, everybody knew the history of Tyrrell. I knew the history, and you know, even turning up there for the interview and seeing the old woodshed where the cars used to be made and everything, it was just fantastic you know you look back now and you think how on earth did they ever do what they did looking at the complexity of everyone's facilities now and the activities we're doing but yeah still the the, the fondest memories ever really working did there. you develop a love of cricket you through know, ken a love of sport anyway being cricket football whatever i mean i, I know that the, the, the ken was a fan of it and uh, uh i probably appreciated more as i've got older actually <laughs> but uh, yeah it, it was always it was always a good thing and you know 
there was a fantastic team atmosphere in there. There was guys who'd been there 30, 40 years. You'd be talking to someone and suddenly realised that, you know, that they'd have been working on the car back in Jackie Stewart time. It was just amazing, really. And how much freer were the technical regulations back then? I mean, in all honesty, I'm talking back, 96, not 73. Yeah, <laughs> good, because I probably couldn't comment too much on 73. I mean, even in 96, you know, I look back now and look at them and they were a, a lot freer and, you know, and a lot smaller as a set of regulations. But honestly, at that point, I was a young guy just doing what I was told. Whatever's put in front of you, you draw it, you do the best thing you can. You go through this process of submitting a drawing, awful lot of red pen being put all over it. No, do it like this, do it like that. You get it back and you think, oh my God, and then, but it's a learning experience. No, you want to do it like this. Why have you done that? You, you shouldn't do it like that. And so for me, I was more focused on understanding how to become a designer, picking up the skills, understanding how you do something, be it dimensioning or modeling a part. So at that point, I was more keen just to understand how to be a designer and improve and not really focused on the big picture like I am now, really. Did you get any exposure to the drivers that year, Mikasalo and Ukio Katayama? I mean, I met the drivers but again you know it's like okay the drivers were in there having a seat fit so you'd watch the seat fit you'd see what went on but yeah I, you know I was just a guy in the background with an awful lot of design work to do and, and deadlines to meet and quietly beaving away and trying to not make mistakes. So let's talk drivers who's the best driver you've ever worked with? I mean it's, it's a difficult question really I mean in, in, in Formula One the driver I've learned the most from and, and, and uh, benefited the most from would probably be uh, Giancarlo Fisichella. Pole position, pole position for the Belgian Grand Prix, mate. Pole position. Yeah, P1, mate. Not bad, not bad. Giancarlo, an unbelievable session. Your best qualifying position up to this point this year was 13th. Only one question to ask you. How did you do it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I don't know about pole position in Q3. It's uh, it's amazing. It's uh, it's fantastic. I'm so happy about that. Um, I need to thank the team because they did a fantastic job and I didn't expect uh, that uh, result. So I'm, I'm really, really happy and really confident for tomorrow. What about the result for Force India? Their 31st race and they pick up their first point and it's a podium as well. Giancarlo Fisichella. I worked with him 2008-2009 uh, at Force India. You know, he's a very experienced driver by that time. And uh, the way he could feedback what the car was doing was a great help to me as an engineer to understand some things. And uh, his ability to accept the setup being moved around a lot and giving you feedback on things. You know, you can run all the simulations and you can have all the thoughts you like, but having a driver who can actually tell you this is what it's actually doing, it was very good. So I, I found that, um, really beneficial it was a time when there was an upturn in form in force india as well we started to be in 2009 quite competitive so it all sort of rolled together so i guess there's a bias also to that as well but i found that a really good period working with him fantastic guy to work with what do you want in terms of feedback from a driver is it just this is what the car's doing or do you want them to offer up some potential solutions as well it's both really i mean ultimately you know their basic job is to go out take the car to the limit and come back and tell you about it and give you sensible feedback in, in, in uh, on what they're feeling, what the car's doing, the engineer being safe in the knowledge that they are driving it to the limit and that they're giving you feedback in priority order and making sure they're emphasizing the things which are the biggest problems. But at the same time, the driver can have a different viewpoint on something that you might not have had yourself or seen in the sim tool or he can just make an observation and all of a sudden you think, or you might think, ah, that's interesting. So it's a, it's a mix of both really, but the key point is the driver's got to be able to clearly tell you and accurately tell you what the car's doing, you know, in, in a sensible priority order, really. And uh, when the guys get to Formula One, they're, they're typically at a point where they can do that. Who else has stood out then? I mean, away from Formula One, you know, I've done some sports car racing and uh, GT1 with, with uh, uh, the Aston Martin uh, DBR9 project from ProDrive. And uh, obviously there you're working with two or three drivers. So that was fantastic as well, because you can't set the car up for one guy and you're just focusing on one. You've got to focus on three guys car's got to qualify but then it's got to be raceable and i'd gone to sports car off the back of dtm which is the polar opposite which is put the car on the knife edge got to do the race one driver focus for qualifying races are relatively short you know just driving flat out you got a sports car race you got a 24-hour race that's the last thing the driver wants that you know if his eyeballs out for 24 hours because the car's on the edge that's not what you want so I, that was a you know, the drivers I was involved with, there, people like uh, Peter Cox, who had a fantastic engineering brain and could help you to set a drivable car up. And that's a very different approach to DTM, where you put the car on the edge and you've just got to 
you know, really nail it. And in DTM, I worked with drivers like Manuel Reuter, who were really capable of giving you what was needed to do that. So there's a range of different requirements. So you put all that together, you know, and I now understand what it's like to engineer a sports car that's got to go 24 hours. And I understand what it's like to try and get a DTM car to the point that you can nail that qualifying lap and then, you know, just sort of get those short races dealt with as, as you can. And then in Formula One now, which is a combination of all those things and other things. So different drivers give you different learnings and different, and, and, and different experiences. I was going to say, so are you using some of that knowledge from the DTM, from sports cars in Formula One now? I think you do. I, I think that, you know, the experiences you get, be it on the design side, because I was involved in the design of the, the uh, DBR9 GT1 car and also a number of the, the DTM cars I worked on. You've got the design experience, you've got the engineering experience. And then you, you always call on some of that. You know, now with, um, you know, with the regulations now this year and, we, you know, discussion about bouncing and porpoising, we had a bit of that in DTM back in the day. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't totally new to me. I remember when we first experienced it in DTM as a race engineer and you call on some of the experiences from that and you go, OK, 2002, 2003, what did we do? I'm just trying to remember that again. So, you know, I had a lot of exposure to carbon brakes and other things before I got to Formula One. So all of these things you call on it at certain times you know there's all of these cars are producing downforce that they're all fairly high-tech devices and there's always some basic engineering experience and learning that you can carry forward which hopefully shortcuts later on when you're going so, through the same process jody is it a coincidence that you with previous experience of bouncing in the dtm adrian newey with previous experience of ground effect in formula one itself are two teams that haven't suffered from bouncing as much as other teams Short before the car rolled out and was shaking down, we started to have a view that potentially, the aero guys are saying, there's potentially something here in CFD that we're seeing, don't see it in the tunnel because of how we run the car. We want to keep an eye on this. So we had a bit of a heads up, and that was the first heads up that bouncing and porpoising could be a thing. We shook the car down, we gathered some data and went, okay, let's get to work on this and try and tidy it up and make the car a little bit more stable. They were not massive issues, but it was there. And honestly, it was only at that point when I started to sort of recall in the memory banks, okay, DTM 2003, uh, we had a problem with the splitter, grounding and porpoising, what did we do? And it's like, okay, looked at damping, looked at stiffnesses, we know that lifting the ride is not always the best thing to do for overall car performance. So knowing how to react, I was probably less concerned than I would have been had I never experienced it. But in terms of sitting down a year before and going, okay guys, keep your eye on por porpoising, no, not really, I've got to be honest. It was a discussion on, on and off when we knew that the car was going to be operating closer to the ground. But what we're seeing now was not, I would go as far as saying, not totally predicted by any team. Right, back to drivers. And let's talk about your current guys at yeah. AlphaTauri. First of all, Pierre Gasly, such a brilliant season last year. You've just confirmed that he's staying with the team in, in 2023. What is Pierre's greatest strength? I mean, we've known... Uh, Pierre, a long time. He started out with us. He went away. He came back again. Um, he's great. He's a, he's a fantastic team player, but we shouldn't confuse that with um, his, his push and desire to be successful. You know, when things are not right, he's clear in telling us. But the way he goes about doing it, his work rate's high. He works well with the engineers, the way he explains things, even the way, you know, the good and the bad in the team. He's very positive in driving everybody forward and he's very open to being pushed forward himself so you know as a team he works well with us and you know he's ambitious you know he's signed for next year we need to give him a bloody good car next year he's a good asset the pressure's on to make sure we can give him what he needs next year to continue on you know on on the path we want to be on but uh yeah he's good we like working with, with him and uh, he's a smart guy and uh he's developing as a driver still and it's fantastic to see is he on a par with Max Verstappen, Carlos Sainz, who you worked with back in 2015? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, we were involved with Carlos and Max at the start of their career. And, you know, and it was clear that they, you know, that they had the traits of being talented drivers. And Pierre, when we started working with him, shows the same traits and he's developed from that point, really. So, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, those two guys are really good examples. They were great. They came in to Torosso as it was and they were competitive and really strong and dedicated and working hard and Pierre's shown all the same traits really so yeah he, he's, he's another drive out the same mould and he's driving brilliantly but how bruised was he by that experience at Red Bull Racing do you think? I mean I, th I think Pierre himself has been clear in explaining his feelings and emotions over that but in all honesty you know he left our team he came back he hopped in the car and we got on with it without any consideration of what had come from. He was straight back on it. It was like he'd never been away. And I have to say, it's a credit to him that he just got on with it. You know, there was no sad face or anything. And straight away, we were really happy to be working with him again. And it's not something we talked about 
a lot really. He came, you know, before we came back, we suddenly thought, oh, I wonder what he's going to be like. But in all credit to him, he got straight back on with it, and the engineers got on with it, and we've just worked with him, and we're happy working with him. And uh, believe it or not, it was not such a big thing. It was like, okay, we know him. He's coming back. Let's crack on. Jody, was he a better driver for that experience? Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think you know, it, it's often said, you know, you, you learn from good and bad experiences. But he he came back a, a better driver, and he came back mentally strong. And which is why I say there was no big drama, really. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew where he wanted to go. We were at a point where we had a bit of an upturn in form. The car was looking good. He contributed to the development of that car. So we never really had any point where we were saying, oh, I don't know really what's going on here. He was straight on it. So it was that straightforward for us, which was fantastic. Oh my God, guys, we did it again. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> P1, Pierre, P1. We just won the race. I just want to say congrats to all of you. All of you. All of you. you did amazing job. Alpha Tari, Honda, all the engineers, all the mechanics, everybody in Fanza. Thanks to you, we, we did it. We did it. Yeah! Jody, tell us a little bit now about Yuki's potential. How has he improved since last year? How has he improved from last year? I think, uh, you know, he, he's quicker. Um, obviously, it's a different set of regulations, a different car, but looking at the data, he's faster, he's more consistent, and uh, stating the obvious, he's making less mistakes. However, he's still a relatively new driver and he's very uh, early in his career. He's also had to adapt to a new car the second year of his career, and that's not to be underestimated, I think, for any of these young drivers. Some of the other guys who've come in earlier have been dealing with evolutions of car. He's dealt with the revolution of car. You know, he, he's on a good learning curve. It's not easy. The car's not as competitive as last year's yet. So it's, it's harder to showcase for him. But uh, yeah, he's, he's pushing Pierre harder now and uh, he's developing nicely. And uh, yeah, he's on, a, he's on a good path. You know, we're not there yet. He's not the finished product. He'd say that himself. He's developing well, but he's got a long way to go and we've got a long way to go to develop the car. So. Yeah, so far so good, you know, we're sort of midterm exams, we are as we are and we'll keep going and, and uh, we're confident we'll keep developing. You say he's quicker than last year. When you look at the data, where is he quicker? There's two things. He's adapting to Formula One and even though they've had a regulation change, the way he was driving the car evolved even through last year. You know, at the start of the year, he had some good results out of the box and everyone was like, oh, wow, Yuki's great. But like a lot of rookies, you know, when you do the analysis, they start well and then they go through a bit of a purple patch and he did, he went through a point where his confidence dipped and he was questioning himself and questioning what he wanted to do with the car. And then he popped out the other side of that and towards the end of last year, I think he'd understood how he wanted the car set up. His driving had also evolved to give him a wider range of setups he could sort of digest. And he just carried that form on really. I think the Yuki we've got now, it's easier to set a car up for him than it was mid-season last year, where a combination not really being sure what he wanted and you know, the shunts and mistakes affecting his confidence. You know, he went through that patch, but he's come out the other side of that and he's much more able to say now what he wants from the car. And I think that's a good thing. And that's a milestone with any rookie, you know, work with other drivers before that have gone through patches where you know they've got the talent, but the races are not going their way or they're making silly mistakes or they're suffering from reliability fusses, which means they're missing mileage. And I think his path navigating that has not been different from a number of other rookies, but the expectations are high, yeah? We're a solid midfield team and we're meant to deliver and it's, it's a lot harder for him than it would be if we were pounding round at the back and he could quietly get on with the business of becoming a better driver. What's his feedback like? Again, it's improving. You know, it, it's not bad. <laughs> Does he swear as much as he did? Or? I mean, uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, we, we do talk to him about that and uh, he does take it on board, but in the heat of the moment, yeah, he's one of the, he's got some choice language, which I imagine he didn't pick up at language school. Um, the, the engineers deal with it and they're very polite and nice back to him. But uh, yeah, we, we often remind him that it's probably not the most descriptive way to improve the car, but it's part of being him. And on the flip side, people sometimes say that the drivers don't show enough character. Well, he's, he's showing a character. Maybe people don't like what they hear, but we typically know what he means. And then when we've debriefed at the end of the race, everything's calmed down. It's gone, OK, we understand what you're saying, but let's try and find a better way to, to communicate it. I, I've worked with drivers before who've been like that, probably in an era when we recorded less of what the drivers said and communicated less of what the drivers said. But for me, I've been down that road. What I will say is I think the engineers are fantastically polite. I'm not sure... I was that polite when I was a race engineer in reply, but again, uh, if my mum had heard me, she wouldn't have been so pleased with some of the replies I was potentially giving drivers. And 
Jody, have you spent more time with Yuki since he's he's moved to Faenza and he we're told he's coming into the factory a lot. Franz is putting him through his paces. I'm, I yeah. assume you are as well, right? Yeah, I mean, having him there more, he's around more, and you know, he'll pop in for a chat. And uh, or when he's around more, you take the opportunity to have more discussions with him. And I do that. A lot of my more detailed discussions are through the engineers. You know, we'll, we'll run through certain things with the engineers and say, right, these are the key points you need to communicate to the driver and get him in the loop on these points. But don't worry about these points because, you know, there's certain things he needs to be focused on and certain things which are just noise in the background. So I do a lot of my detailed communication through the vehicle performance group and the race engineering group. But yeah, I have a sit down with him and we talk and say things and it's good to learn about each other. He probably understands me a bit more now and knows what type of guy I am. And I know a bit more about him because there's a lot more to us all than what we see at the track. So meeting at the factory and maybe having a discussion around a coffee, it probably helps us both, I'd say. Now, you've mentioned that from Tyrrell, you went to X-Track, where you were a gearbox designer. That You then worked in the DTM with Opel, then Aston Martin in sports cars. What brought you back to Formula One? I went to X-Track and I sort of specialised as a gearbox designer, which was fantastic. I wanted to get a skill set. And... Uh, but I was always keen to get into race engineering, and that's how I ended up going out to Germany. I was... Uh, to do design and engineering work. I ended up just doing engineering work and then I went to uh, Aston Martin as a designer and an engineer. But in the background, Formula One was sort of something I always wanted to do, but I was enjoying DTM, but family life and marriage brought me back to the UK and it was always nibbling away in the background. And then I can't remember exactly. I think there was a, I think someone said, oh, uh, Jordan Midland as it was, are looking for a race engineer. And I thought, oh, why not? And I was at Purge. I was happy enough there. Sports car racing was okay. But uh, I think I thought, well, why not? I'll apply. And then uh, I think I had two interviews in like three nights or something. I can't remember. Next thing I know, I've, I've accepted the position and I've told ProDrive I'm leaving and I'm, off, I'm up and running. And that was it, really. And then uh, you know, I, I served my notice and I, and I was back in. And, it, and it, I think within about two days of being there, I thought, this is fantastic. I'm really pleased I've come back to Formula One. But yeah, it was no specific strategy. Someone told me there was a job available. And I think my wife said to me, go on, you may as well apply. Yes. You keep talking about it, go back to it and give it a go. And I did. And then from that moment on, it was like, this is great. And uh, yeah, I was race engineer and loved it. Yeah. And that was Midland F1 that yeah. then went on to become Force India. How much of a sea change was it there when Vijay Malia got involved? Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it was uh, Midland. I enjoyed again. It was a young engineering team. James Key was a technical director. It was fantastic. Again, a smaller team with more exposure to things than you would get in a bigger team. Uh, you know, I loved it. We were all in one office and uh, learned a lot. It was a fantastic experience. You know, it was a small team. We were struggling, difficult times, but I really enjoyed it. And it was quite a good little car, the, the, the 2006 car. I really enjoyed engineering. It was nice. And then there was Spike of Force India. Vijay came along, bought the team. I remember he called a meeting. He got a lot of people into a room and sort of said, you know, I'm taking over the team. What do you guys want? I can't remember the exact details, but I was there with uh, Jean-Pierre Lambiesi, who's now Verstappen's engineer. And I think we basically said, want a Mercedes power unit, uh, McLaren rear end and Alonso or something like that, I can't remember. And we got the Mercedes engine, we got the McLaren rear end, and we got a driver shootout, which is how we got Fisichella. We went along and did a test. We put six or eight drivers in. We did a driver shootout and selected who we wanted. So it was fantastic. That was 2008. 2009 so to be fair to vj he sat down he listened to people and you know it was a late call on the rear end and the power unit but that set us up for 2009 so we did 2008 with the ferrari power unit and yeah it, again as a race engineer that was fantastic driver shootout was great that car was a quick car and i enjoyed my final year there so yeah he was uh, it was good working for him at that time you know i only did a uh, two years under force india and vj's ownership but yeah i loved it it was great then caterham yeah Honestly, I was super happy at Force India as a race engineer. I loved it. But again, out of the blue, someone contacts me and said, you know, do you want to, you interested in being a chief engineer, you know, another step on your career. It's a new team. <sighs> okay. So I decided to jump ship because it was a, a career progression. I underestimated the size of the task, I have to say. Um, 2010, so the first year for the new teams. Never worked so hard in my life. Incredible. Um, it was a struggle. Again, I learned a lot, but it was brutal, the amount because of Because you were lacking in staff, or, or why was it such hard work? I mean, at the three new teams, to be fair to Tony Fernandez and the technical guys who set it up, you know, they'd, they'd done a good job trying to get as far as they had, but I probably underestimated what was needed to be competitive quickly. And also, these teams had joined up 
under the premise of a budget cap. I think it was 60, 70 million or something back then. And then the rules change and all of a sudden you're going up against these established teams. And out of the three new teams, we were the best prepared, I would say, of all respect to the other teams. Good driver lineup with Jano and, and, and uh, Kovalainen, it was good. But the amount of things that you have to do just to get established, it was brutal. And uh, I enjoyed it and we did a good job. 2010, 2011, we were on a good trajectory. But the task is massive and for the new teams it was tough and uh as i said i learned a lot but i was by 2012 i was worn out which is when i stepped away from trackside really because i was just it was just like this is incredible i can't carry on like this is killing me what flat out back at the factory i was traveling flat out yeah i was traveling to all the races i was very busy as it wasn't just me everyone was flat out and uh, it was, I was finding it really difficult and I had the opportunity to take a factory role as operations director and we were going to move to Leafield to the new facility and I, I was really keen to be involved in setting that up, renovation of the factory because the factory needed a lot of work on it, buying machinery, improving infrastructure. So I moved over to that role <laughs> and in all honesty, it was as tiring as it was traveling because we were trying to move base and grow the team and then things started to go downhill with the team and it got even more difficult and I learned so much being operations director and all these new experiences but when you haven't got a cash flow and the money's difficult it becomes harder and harder and harder and you're learning a lot and you're getting very streetwise but you're thinking how are we going to be competitive when we're fighting these sort of challenges so Toro Rosso come knocking I think the first job back in 2014 was head of vehicle performance and did you have to think twice I mean as I've just described with the Caton business I was operations director and it was getting tough and uh, yeah, I was getting a bit tired and a bit, a bit weary. Still big believer in Formula One, believed in the project. James Key was technical director at Toro Rosso, got in contact and said, you interested? And it was a move back into the technical side from the operations side. And I thought, you know what, I think I am. James had been doing what looked like some really good stuff at Toro Rosso. And I'd worked with James at Midland, Spike of Force India, got a lot of time for James, great guy. So yeah, went and had a chat. I thought, yeah, why not? So next thing I know, I, I'm at Toro Rosso and, you know, w went over, joined in the September 2014 as head of vehicle performance group. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic back into the technical side and, and uh, yeah, loved it. Great bunch of guys, fantastic support from Red Bull. No budget issues, no cash flow issues. Just get on with the job of making the car fast. So refreshing after Caterham, which was the polar opposite in the last months. And, and yeah, you've lived in England, you've lived in Germany. Yeah. How is living in Italy? You know, it works quite well. We've got 100 people in Vista at the wind tunnel. We've got, you know, 350, 400 odd people in Faenza. So I work between the two sites. And right from joining in 2014, I was working between the two sites, plus a little bit of Grand Prix attendance. So you sort of make it work. Italy's fantastic in weather terms and the food. And Faenza's a nice little town. Uh, Toro Rosso and Tari now were very good at setting me up with an apartment and looking after all of the, those sorts of things. My wife and kids come come out in all the school holidays and it so, just so works. they've stayed in the uk yeah they've stayed in the uk i'm in the uk probably 25 percent, 30 percent of my time now it sort of works and uh, i travel to a lot of grand prix a lot from the uk so you sort of make it work and they come out to italy and uh, for them it's a holiday home for me it's a base when i'm working in italy and it works really i mean the idea was okay we'll give it three years normally your contract lengths are three years and i've been there seven and i don't remember it being a big discussion point everyone's just happy to roll on with it it works you know it's uh, as I said it's like a holiday home for them and, and they enjoy the experience I think now I remember first going to Faenza in 1998 to interview Esteban Tuero and back then the factory was little more than just a few little sheds yeah and I, <laughs> it really was like that what is it like now how has it evolved I mean, it's evolved massively. I mean, when I joined, we were still in what were referred to me as the Minardi buildings, these, these concrete, various concrete buildings. But they were, they built a new manufacturing facility and next door to it, they were starting work on what is now our, our base. So I think I did about a year and a half in the old buildings. And after working at Leafield Technical Centre, it was a bit of a shock initially. It was people in porter cabins because they were moving people around. And the team had grown massively. And we weren't really geared up for it. But then we moved into new facility and it's fantastic. You know, it's th three floors, it's, you know, all the latest mod cons and that's great. It's changed a lot. You know, we filled the building, you know, we're expanding again now. But uh, yeah, after that short period of time in these other buildings, it was great to work into sort of a, a, a cutting edge facility with everyone in the same building. You're not having to sort of walk down the road on a hot day to find a guy from the CFD group or something. So it's been fantastic. When you've got a team like Ferrari, I'm not just down the road, but in 
global terms just down the road. How difficult is it for you guys to attract technical talent? Because are they the magnet? Any, anyone who wants to go and live in Italy and work in Formula One will go to the red team, not the blue and white team. Yeah, I mean, I think naturally, you know, the history of Ferrari and who they are, they are a magnet in Italy. You know, it's the biggest and the most popular Formula One team in Italy. We're there as well. But honestly, we um, recruitment's never easy to get the people you want, but we do manage to do it. I think as the team's grown, we become more competitive. The team's become more well-known. Uh, it does help. But yeah, it's probably easier for Ferrari to recruit. But potentially, on occasions, we're looking for something slightly different to Ferrari. We might want a slightly broader skill base or maybe we'll take a risk on more younger engineers and really, you know, try to take young talent and grow it as quickly as possible. So, yeah, it, it is like that. Recruitment's never easy, but, uh, and there's less, you know, in Motorsport Valley in the UK, it's, it's probably easier, well, it is easier because I've been through that process in the UK, but we manage, and I think we've got a lot of attributes in the team now, which we're developing, which make us attractive to people. You know, we're, you know, we're punching above our weight and I think, we're, you know, we're doing a good job and people want to come along and be part of that, I think. So you're the technical boss. What about the team principal, Franz Tost? He's a very keen racer. Yep. <laughs> what does he like to work with? I'd, I'd heard various stories about Franz before I joined, as you do about lots of people who are senior in teams. And, uh, but honestly, Franz is a racer and uh, he'll say what he thinks. And I, and I like that. I, I like the straightforwardness. But at the end of the day, he's, he's fantastically supportive and he doesn't attempt to design the car. He'll give his opinion but I got a pretty free hand. Having said that, when things don't go right, you know, I'm the one that he, you know, the first person he'll go to, asking questions, wanting explanation, giving me his opinion. So he is a racer and he wants the best for the team. And he's, you know, he's, he's Alpha Tari through and through and he really wants it. And, you know, we want to deliver for him because I like to see the smile on his face and I like to know on Monday morning, I can have a coffee before we start the discussion. But He's really supportive as a boss and uh, yeah, you know, he, he has his moments, but he's good and you always know where you stand with him and that's important, you know. If something's not right, you know that and if something's good, you know that as well. And uh, yeah, everything I've asked for since I've been accountable and responsible, he's delivered on. Right, that's his leadership style. Yeah. How would you describe yours? I'd like to think I'm straightforward. I try to be. That probably means I say things that some people don't like on occasions, but I also try to explain myself. Uh, I, I try to put... You know, I've got a, a good group of people around me, heads of the various departments, be it design, aero, vehicle performance, IT, R&D. And, you know, I try to engage them a lot and, and use their skills because they've all got skills and the people who work for them have got skills that are far more detailed than mine in any specific area. I'm just a glue that tries to bond it all together and get the best out of it. So, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty straightforward and, and pragmatic. Hopefully they appreciate that. It's probably a different management style to what they were used to in the past and, and maybe it's something different to what they'll be used to in the, in, in the future but yeah I try to be pretty straightforward and focus on what we can control and extract the most out of it our objectives are clearly communicated and uh, yeah we, we, you know we want to make the most of our skills which is to be a, a quick react team and sort of agile team we're a small team we're meant to be agile and that's what I, I really promote and uh, yeah I mean I have to make the decisions at the end of the day but you know I, I try to really get the most out of the people I work with because a lot of them have got a lot you know all of them have got some fantastic contributions to make so as I said I'm just a my job is to extract the most out of them and make sure we we stay on track and make the tricky decisions talking of tech bosses who have been your inspirations in in history not just now growing up you know reading all, all, all manner of uh engineering books you know there's certain books you've read more than others ever but uh you know j j just in general terms you know you see what uh Gordon Murray, AJ Newey, you know, they're, they're guys who've done fantastic things and, and we've all seen the successes and, and the way they've gone. John Barnard's another one. They're not people I know personally to any great degree, but, you know, they're people that you can look at and say, oh, they, they did some interesting stuff. You know, it, it was really impressive. People that I've worked with, Peter Digby at Extract, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a race team, but Pete's way of doing things and the responsibility that he gave the designers there and the engineers. He'd really let you get on with it. Very straightforward guy. And I got a lot to thank him for when I went into his office and said, look, I want to go car racing. I want to go and do Formula 3 or DTM. He went, well, we don't want to lose you, but do you know what? I'll see if I can help you out. And he didn't have to do that. And he, you know, he gave me a job from Tyrrell. He knew some people at Tyrrell. He helped me out. So people have helped me out and given me opportunities, I, I think, are worthy of mention. Uh, I enjoyed working with James. Fantastic guy, James Key. Worked with him on, on twice now. And... Uh, you know, just their way of working. You learn a lot and you get a lot of freedom to do things. And I think that's important because it allows you to sort of improve your skills 
knowing that there's a safety net there. Can you give us a little indication as to how your working day is in terms of how much of it is focused on the current car, how much of it is on regulations? We're all talking about the, the power unit regulations for 2026, aren't we? Yeah. How much of it is talking to the accountants about the budget cap? I mean, can you just give us, shed a bit of light on that for us? Yeah, I mean, we'll start with the budget cap bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm a lot more familiar with the chief accountant at AlphaTauri <laughs> now. We're, we're, we're best friends or worst friends, depends <laughs> well, what the topic is. Um, so that's something I've had to you know, build into my How schedule. How frustrating is that, having to talk about budgets? Um, uh, or have you always had to do that? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's an interesting one. My time at Caterham, when we had interesting scenarios with cash flow, I found myself getting really into it. Um, not because I wanted to, but because it was critical stuff when I was operations director. So I had an overview of it, but from the other end of the spectrum, that is, oh my God, we haven't got enough money to do what we need to do. Now, you know how much money you've got. It's the budget cap and you've got to make it work for you. So yeah, uh, you have to give time over to it. It's a reality of Formula One now. So uh, on a daily basis, I'm speaking to the financial people. We have a good system where you know every morning there'll be an update on where you are and then I'll be updating him on where we're going with car development and watching his hair turn grey and fall out and then in reply he'll be telling me wherever they are with the budget cap and I might have a sleepless night so it, it's that sort of thing so there's that and then there's the usual regulation stuff there's a lot of activity regarding uh, future regulations technical working group on the representative for AlphaTauri there so when the agendas come through, speaking to all my direct reports, asking them to look at certain things, getting the feedback, communicating that back out, um, speaking to vehicle performance group, race analysis, car development with the aero group. So I'm talking to all of the heads day in, day out. I've just spent the last three days prior to here based at the wind tunnel. So my focus has been more towards aero stuff because I'm split my time between Faenza and all the aero activities in the UK. So yeah, a lot of emails, you know, you have to give away time just to, chip away where you are with emails and put priorities on things so it's a little bit of everything really a lot of meetings yeah a lot of meetings when did you last actually design something years ago and i would imagine a lot <laughs> of designers years. would say thank god so it's uh, yeah i mean i might sit in a meeting and say have you thought about this have you thought about that and on occasions i, I can only imagine the look on their faces i might sketch something you know, point at it ferociously and then walk off. But uh, yeah, in terms of sitting at a CAD station, I might look at a CAD viewer a couple of times a week and and see what's going on. But yeah, if I'm designing things, something's gone wrong. Not because they've made a mistake. It means because our system's broken. That's not my role now. You know, like if I was engineering a car this weekend, that's wrong. Something's gone very wrong if you find yourself doing that. As I said, I'm the glue that should bring it all together now. It's busy, busy, busy. I can see that. Do you have time for any hobbies outside of Formula One? I mean, your passion for, for motorbikes, you talked about that earlier. Yeah, I mean, you know, family, you've got to find time for family. I've got an 18-year-old and a 13-year-old son and a wife. And, you know, the first focus is giving time over to them. You know, my eldest son's just gone through his last set of exams and my youngest son's heading into his GCSEs. And Are they interested in, in engineering? Yeah, my eldest son is more interested in uh, digital marketing and, 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 the, and, and that sort of thing. And, and uh, my youngest son... Uh, he's into motocross and he's into engineering, so maybe he's going more that, that, that way, but I don't force them. They, they must do what they enjoy at that age. Um, so, yeah, the first thing is putting time into the family. Uh, yeah, you mentioned motorbikes, big motorbike nut. You know, if I hadn't gone to Formula One, it would have been MotoGP. You know, that, that was the other thing. I, I ride motorbikes, I love them. I've got a few bikes at home. Uh, UK oh, weather hang, hang doesn't on. let You've me got enjoy them. What have you got? Uh, so I've got a Ducati 916, so it's a classic. Uh, late 90s superbike. Yes, yeah. you know the thing that Fogarty was sounding around. Amazing. Yeah, fantastic bit of kit. I'm probably a bit old to ride it in a sporting manner now, but I have that which I ride as much as I can, which isn't too often. BMW HP2, which is another sports bike that's far too quick for me, and a couple of uh, old two-stroke bikes, which was the stuff from my youth. Do you do track days? Uh, I used to, not now, because uh, I need to go to work on Monday, and I'm sure fans wouldn't be too happy if I call in from hospital. So, Jody, what is it about motorbikes and engineers? I know so many engineers in this paddock who are passionate about two wheels. Yeah, I mean, it was my thing before cars. I mean, you can ride a motorbike before you can drive a car. Um, Is it as simple as that? It's that and the fact that, again, it could be a cliche. I'm a sense, I like to think I'm a sensible rider. My My wife would disagree, but I quite like the risk, not the risk, but I quite like the fact you've got to concentrate. And, and, and you, you know, you, you've got to be respectful and careful when you're on it. And honestly, 
the performance of these bikes is fantastic. Although you get nowhere near the envelope on the road, the edge of the envelope, you know, on the other day I've done a track day for a moment, I thought I'm fantastic, followed by the next moment thinking I don't have the talent. But I quite like the idea of just reminding myself of the talent I don't have. And they're fantastic and they're great to look at. And it's the closest thing you can get to a, a race bike. You know, you can't run a, you know, a Ducati 916 SPS is pretty close to a World Superbike of the mid nineties. There's not a car equivalent. So I quite like that sort of thing. I think you're a madman. When we're talking two wheels, is it two wheels and engines or bicycles as well? Uh, bicycles. So uh, I was also designing and building my own bikes back in the day and I used to race mountain bikes and road bikes. And for a short moment, I thought that could be a career, but then I realized again, talent is a requirement. So I moved towards designing stuff. So yeah, I was always well into that and uh, I was making bikes on and off. And then about, I can't remember now, about 10 years ago, I had the idea I wanted to design a mountain bike. So I designed one. And I thought, well, I haven't got time to make it. I'll see if I can get someone to make it for me. And I ended up speaking to various companies out in Taiwan. Can you make me this bike? And the next thing I know, I couldn't find someone to make it. But I came across this guy who said, well, I can, I've got a company that I don't want anymore. He was a, a, a Wilkie Cycles. He said, I've got suppliers and everything lined up. I've never actually made a bike, but I've got it all lined up for a ridiculously small price, I'll give you access to all of that. So my wife actually bought the company, it's her company. And uh, I bought this company and went, right, great, I'll get my titanium bike made. And then, oh, we'll be right, let's make a few bikes and see if we can sell them. Next thing we know, just containers of bikes coming over from Taiwan to the UK. And I've got, a, I've got an online bicycle business and we ran it for a couple of years and- Can I, sorry, is yeah. this whilst working in Formula One? I was at Caterham at the time right. and I was thinking, well, if it all goes wrong at Caterham, this looks like this is the next thing. Next thing I know I'm in Toroso and it's like, oh no. So my wife ran it for a couple of years alongside another business that she's got her own business. And then we went, oh, this isn't really working. The idea was great, but and it was a fantastic business because I haven't got time for this. So I sold the business about a year before the pandemic. Thank God, because looking at it now, the idea of importing things in, from the other side of the world would be more of a challenge. So yeah, it was a, a hobby and a mad idea that ended up owning a company for three or four years. It was fantastic, but yeah, by chance really. So yeah, it probably says something about my character more than my solid business acumen. It was profit making, but probably not the smartest move ever. Jody, you're a man who has many strings to his bow. That is evident. Look, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, let's end it just by looking ahead to 2023. You, we know you've got Pierre Gasly. Don't know what the future is with Yuki yet, but you're starting to think about next year's car already. How hopeful are you for next season? I mean, I mean honestly, so, so, sort of starting at the board objective, you know, we want to be in the top five in the Constructors' Championship, and that's it. You know, last year we had a car to do it, and we didn't do it, and that hurts. Um, this year, we're not there yet, but we're still developing the car, and that's the target, and that's the target for next year. Now, we've got half a season to go. We've got development still coming through, but, you know, the, the, the technical brief is, that's what that car's got to deliver, and we've, you know, I've just spent the last few days in the winter and a lot of discussions starting up about next year and where we're going with the car, and that's it, and that's what we're fired up to achieve. We've got the drivers to do it. We've proven we can develop a car to do it. We've just got to bring it all together. So that's what we want. And anything else is under delivery. You know, and if we don't deliver, you know, if we're sixth this year, as far as I'm concerned, technically, we've under delivered. There's no excuse because we're capable of doing it because we nearly delivered it last year. The car was capable of it. So it, it's like that. And that's what we want to do. We want to be fighting in the midfield consistently. And that's where we need to be. And that's where we're trying to structure the team towards being. And, 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 and it's that simple, really. And I've, I think we can achieve it and, and, and that's, you know, I, I'm currently tasked with doing that. So that's it. Well, best of luck with that. Thank you, Jody. Thank you. Thanks a lot. He's straight talking, isn't he? And given the competitiveness of the midfield this year, whichever team finishes fifth in the Constructors' Championship is going to have done a really good job. Jody, that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. You've had a fascinating career to date and your story will no doubt help to inspire the next generation of F1 engineers as well. Thanks for your time and best of luck for the remainder of the season. As ever, please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Jody. Have you worked with him? Which of his cars to date has been your favourite? Or his bikes for that matter? Send what you've got to me at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which segues nicely into what you sent in after last week's show with David Richards. 
DR has so much motorsport pedigree and many of you enjoyed hearing from him. Let's start with this from Amit Mandalia. Just listen to the latest episode, really insightful from DR, who should have got a ProDrive F1 entry. My two stories about ProDrive are these. I did a factory tour on my 30th birthday, and in 2015, one of their Astons carried my name at Le Mans, and I have the crash-damaged wing. How great is that? Amit's even sent in a picture of his name on the car. That's a great story, and lovely to hear from you again, Amit. Next up, how about this from Sean Tumalissa? Great interview with DR, he says. Uh, Jensen is one of my favourite drivers in Formula One, and DR is probably Jensen's closest friend. I also liked when he talked about the three aspects of being a 30-point score driver. Yes, Sean, his 30-point analysis was fascinating. Not many get the full 30, do they? And why not have a think about who would get the full 30 on the current grid? Now, that's food for thought, isn't it? And let's do one more. Uh, this from Gavin Richardson. In my opinion, says Gavin, this is my favourite episode of yours so far. It's a shame DR only did four seasons as an F1 team principal. Dot, dot, dot. For now. Well, Gavin, you've left that hanging. Imagine if DR came back to Formula One now. It would be quite a story, wouldn't it? Well, look, thanks for all your messages. We love reading them. We also love reading your suggestions for future guests and your reviews. Leave us one on your podcast app and don't forget to follow us. It's the best way to get our new episodes. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. If you'd like something else to listen to, why not check out our interviews with Jody Eggington's AlphaTauri teammates, Pierre Gasly, Yuki Sonoda and Franz Tost. There are links to those episodes in the description for this one. Thanks everyone for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>